welcome to Loud Girls in Quiet Rooms, a podcast about current issues in libraries, museums, and archives. I'm Courtney. And I'm Catherine. And today we're talking about rapid response collecting. Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so glad you're so excited. Good. So I guess we should just start off. Uh, Catherine, what is rapid response collecting? Um, well... Uh, the idea has kind of existed in some form for a really long time, uh, but we're going to talk about archival theory in a minute. <laughs> I promise it won't get boring, but um, let's hold off on that. So the term rapid response collecting was popularized by the Victoria and Albert Museum in London in 2014. We're going to talk about them in a minute, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted a way to collect objects that are culturally relevant in the present day And they were doing it to create an exhibition um, that's updated regularly with these culturally relevant objects. Uh, But it's been adapted by a lot of different institutions. So their argument for doing this type of collecting was that if our collections are going to be useful in the future, isn't it best to just start collecting items related to rapidly emerging events as they happen rather than waiting for sort of like a prevailing historical narrative to select things for them. It just makes sense because it's available and easy to come by, but probably a little difficult to predict what is going to be useful in the future. Right, so that kind of leads us into our overview of archival theory, because um, archival theory stems from the idea that we're going to be preserving things that are of enduring value. And it's hard to know in the moment what's going to be of enduring value. But I think the argument in rapid response collecting is it's better to have it and then get rid of it if it turns out not to be that important. Absolutely. Than to just wait. In our basic overview of archival theory that I promise won't get boring. I'm so excited for this because I know nothing about archival archival theory. Okay, so this is just going to be really general. I'm not even going to give you names of theorists because they're all dead. Just kidding, they're not. They're not. Um, I'm not. I'm just going to keep it pretty general. Um, so the classical view of archives says that archivists should be passive and just kind of accept what people bring to them or what institutions create based on, you know, their directive. And in that kind of theory, archivists are really passive and they just sort of select from what's brought to them what they determine to be of enduring value. And the weird thing about this is they think that that minimizes bias. It doesn't. Yeah, we're going to talk about neutrality um, in a future episode. I think actually our next episode. No, two episodes from now. Um, Soon. Soon. We're going to talk about it soon. So I'm not really going to get into that, but it it doesn't do much to minimize bias. Mm -mm. So the other camp believes that bias is minimized by being more active, the archivist being more active, uh, intervening early in the cycle of preservation to preserve, in some cases, the deluge of digital records, in some cases... relevant artifacts uh, at the time, and sort of reaching out to marginalized communities to preserve their materials and collecting materials that are being created right now to sort of fill in the gaps that they've found in their archives. I like that one better. Yeah, I do too. And I think we both really like the theory of rapid response collecting. Mm -hmm. But one thing to keep in mind about this method is that it is really, really subjective. I can see that. Yeah. Like, it depends on 
what that person thinks is important, what one person thinks important isn't what another person thinks it is. Exactly. So that's why it's best to have a strong argument as to why to collect things. Because time hasn't passed, we can't really say, this is of enduring value because it's survived this long. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, we're saying, I have an argument as to why this is culturally relevant right now and might endure in the future. So since we're talking about archives, I figure we might as well talk about how you might start rapid response collection. For me, the way to start this is to look at your acquisition policy. It tells you what your archive collects, and more importantly, sometimes, maybe just as importantly, what it doesn't collect. So this... Oh. Yeah. Interesting. So so it's your directive. It comes from, you know, having limited space, Uh limited personnel, and just, like, an inability to preserve everything. Right. We can't, and we shouldn't. So... We're going to talk about the Victoria and Albert Museum. Courtney's going to tell you more about that. But in 1908, their acquisition policy sort of stated, and I'm going to quote here, It is obvious that the principle of admitting modern specimens presents grave difficulties. Taste is apt to change with the time. The admission of the work of any one living manufacturer or craftsman would not improbably expose the administration to attack from others and even to the charge of advertising for ulterior ends. So basically they're saying they're not going to take anything that's created uh, by a person who's still alive um, because it would expose them to an attack that says they're just trying to advertise that person's work Mm. rather than actually engage in preservation. So clearly their acquisition policy has changed since they originated (laughs) rapid response collecting. It's a good idea to keep examining your acquisition policies every few years. Twice a decade, I think, is what my professor told us. But I buy that. Yeah. Every five years seems good, just to make sure you still stand by everything in that. So if you're the person who does that at your institution, it might be worth considering adapting it to include rapid response collecting. Mm-hmm. And then one thing that I think is really important, if you're going to do this, is to have really strong deaccession policy. <laughs> that is an excellent point. Absolutely. So by deaccession policy, we mean inability to get rid of things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just being really clear with your donors about how long you might keep something, what you might do if something is determined to be not culturally relevant anymore. Do you mind if I give you an example? Please do. Okay. This is my fun example that I came up with today. So... Um, maybe in a few years, you're going to be like, wow, preserving a shake weight was really fun, but I don't have room for this in my archive anymore. So... I forgot about shake weight. Me too. I forgot about a lot of things that we're going to talk about when we talk about the Victoria and Albert Museum. Yeah. So you don't have room for this shake weight anymore. What are you going to do? Maybe you just keep a digital copy of the shake weight commercial, just as important culturally as the shake weight itself, I feel. Um, I think even more so. Maybe more so. And then you deaccession your actual shake weight. Maybe you deaccession both because nobody remembers what a shake weight is. (laughs) And I don't think any sort of relevant cultural material has been produced due to shake weights, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I can't think of any. Yeah, me either. So, since we're getting into real world examples, do you just want to start talking about Victoria and Albert Museum? Sure. They have a dedicated gallery space to their contemporary collection. So things that they've collected under this rapid response collection 
initiative. And they have collected more recently items like the burkini, which was banned in France, right? Yeah. And the refugee flag from the Rio Olympics. That's so cool. Which is really interesting. And they also have collected weird things like uh, Flappy Bird. I hate that app. <laughs> I hate that. I'm so bad at it. I'm so bad at Flappy Bird. I didn't even try. And I, in this article I read, they said that they were trying to get like a, a demo of it, uh-huh. a, like a, re- a recording of someone playing it. And they had to go through the entire museum to try to find someone who could play it. And it ended up being, like, a trainee electrician or something. Oh, my God. They should have called my friend Jenna, who's really good at it, and it's really annoying. I just, like, didn't even bother with that. It's the worst. But they also collected the first 3D-printed gun, which is terrifying. Does it work? I'm assuming so. That's scary. And um, a set of Katy Perry fake eyelashes, which is kind of funny. Culturally relevant. I like it. Um, But they also have collected things that aren't maybe as fun. So they also collected a pair of Primark pants that were made in a sweatshop in Sri Lanka, maybe? It was the one of them that collapsed. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So to kind of, you know, it's, it's interesting because you can collect these objects that kind of seem ordinary, but you can create a really interesting dialogue based on some of the context that the items are found in. Right. Like, they collected five shades of the uh, nude Louboutins. Yeah. Because all five shades are different shades of nude, depending on your skin color. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where rapid response collecting comes into, rather than just collecting something because it's funny, like a shake weight or flappy bird, mm-hmm. you're collecting something with a strong argument behind it. Right. Another thing that they collected were, um, like, anti-homeless spikes. Yeah. Tell me more about those. Um, so in, I think it's just in London, they had in some public spaces these spikes that they would put on like the sides of buildings and it just in public areas to discourage homeless people from sleeping or sitting there. Oh, sort of like how there are bars and the benches in Chicago. Yes. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And that was part of their, one of their last exhibitions, right? Yes. Yeah. And then uh, Karina Gardner, who's the curator said, as one of my colleagues says, sinister objects demand our attention just as much as beautiful ones, which I think is a great, Quote. Yeah, that's really cool. I think a lot of the time when we're talking about art museums and, you know, like these rare book libraries, we talk about all these cool, amazing things that we can see. But rapid response collecting gives us a way of looking at objects that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's holding a mirror up to contemporary life. Yeah, and I know this is just like kind of a weird side note, but I know during that exhibition, the Disobedient Objects exhibition, um, they did, like, a really cool thing where they covered certain objects in, like, a thin sheet of, I think it was, like, plastic. Okay. So you could still see them. And, like, they'd cover the exhibition, sort of. Rather than put things in a display case, they you could still see it, but maybe not interact with it, because it might be dangerous, like a 3D printed gun or something like that. And mm-hmm. I just thought it was, like, a really cool way. That's really interesting. Of, yeah, creating... Like, in, an exhibition that's safe, but not creating distance between the viewer and um, the objects. Mm-hmm. Which is cool. 
Um, so I want to ask you yes. what you would rapid response collect because in my exhibition writing class, we did an exercise, this was in 2014, of what we would collect. We had to pick three things and write a label for each of them. So my examples from 2014, this is from 2014, <laughs> um, was Ferguson protest signs because this was in September or October of oh, 2014. Wow. So immediately after Beyonce's Lemonade album, or not Lemonade, um, Beyonce's Beyonce album. Yeah. I got all mixed up <laughs> which one was current, but that was like a cultural phenomenon. And then the third thing was um, Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. Oh, that was really big that year. it was really big and it like boosted attendance for the uh, Frick collection because oh, that's right. where the painting was. So I just thought that was a really interesting result of this book. Yeah, that's really cool. I love all of those choices. So what would you collect now? I would say kind of broadly just memes that come up like this year. Oh, yeah. Because it can be a conversation about how people can manipulate them to any situation. You know, it could it could start off as like a funny thing and then be a political thing. Yeah. But also talk about how quickly things cycle out on the internet. I mean, I feel like there's been three or four big memes this year already. Oh, Salt Bay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that's really cool. Especially, like, can I be the curator of Obama-Biden memes? Oh, those are so good. I know. (laughs) Those are great choices. I'm, like, trying to think right now, like, as we're speaking about what I might rapid response collect. The first thing that came to mind, the envelopes from this year's Academy Awards, which happened as we're recording this last night, um, and there's a big controversy over which envelope Warren Beatty had. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think that that, the conversation around La La Land versus Moonlight, whether or not that's a real narrative, it it kind of seemed to be the prevailing narrative of, like, is this white movie going to win, or is this about, like, Hollywood, um, or is this movie made by an African-American film director about, um, sort of, like, love and homosexuality and identity? Mm-hmm. Is that gonna win? And both did. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think that might, and it might be, like, one of the most interesting things to happen in an Academy Award ceremony recently. In a while, yeah. yeah. So, and then the other thing I thought of was um, there have been a lot of ice raids in my hometown. Oh. And I think it would be really interesting to collect sort of, like, people's reflections of what's going on right now. Like, I've been getting Facebook messages from friends who work in the food industry um, Mm -hmm. talking about what people that they work with are feeling. And it would be really interesting to get, like, firsthand narratives of people who are really terrified um, in a really, really small liberal town. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of like an oral history or more like written or both. Either. either. <laughs> um, and I just love that question. Um, I think it's maybe something we'll put out on, on Twitter and see if people talk to us about it. Yeah. Um, we'd love to hear from you guys. So do you mind if I talk about libraries now? Please do. Okay. Well, actually, the two things I'm going to say about libraries circle into your 2014 collection okay. policies. Um, the first thing is that WashU in St. Louis, Washington University in St. Louis, my brother's alma mater, (laughs) Um, after Darren Wilson, a police officer, shot and killed Mike Brown in Ferguson in Missouri in 2014, 
Washington University in St. Louis, which is 10 miles from Ferguson, um, used rapid response collecting in this project called Documenting Ferguson that I thought was really interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. So what they wanted to do was preserve the digital materials made mostly by tech-savvy protesters or, you know, people engaging in the narrative like against the protesters because public sentiment was kind of changing on an hour-to-hour basis, I feel mm-hmm. like. They really wanted to document, like, the popularization of the hashtag Black Lives Matter and the use of the hashtag Ferguson. So they preserved web content, blog posts, social media, and they did it all anonymously for the protection of, um, yeah, their donors. So all you had to do to donate was send in an email, um, and the email was only seen by, like, the system administrator. That sort of, like, provenance information they decided wasn't, it was too risky to publicize it. Okay. So they didn't retain it, which I thought was another really interesting aspect of this, is it's like changing not only general archival theory, but, like, certain tenets of archives. Like, you need to know the provenance. Mm -hmm. Things, like, really high importance being placed on that. And so this project, which is really cool, spawned a ton of other projects, like History Out Loud, um, and they worked with a lot of... They ended up working with a lot of different organizations, like Documenting the Now, and we'll link to both of those things. And they did this with really limited resources, which I think is one of the coolest parts of this project is they did it pretty much immediately and just kind of figuring things out as they went. It's always amazing to see how successful people can be with limited time and limited funds. There are so many creative, smart people out there. It's so exciting. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're both really excited to talk about this today. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about on a more minor scale, what I'm trying to push forward in my library right now, um, in conjunction with a couple other people on the um, public relations committee. What we want to do is allocate some funds for really quick purchases, like things we would purchase from pretty much Amazon Prime and get into the library collection within two to three days, which we have the capability of doing. Um, We do it for professors who need books really quickly for research. Okay. But we want to do it with things that are more culturally relevant, which is why I almost started, like, cracking up when you said you would collect lemonade, Um, (laughs) even though you meant Beyonce's Beyonce. I'm talking about Beyonce's Lemonade, which Mm -hmm. came out this last summer and made reference to Warson Shire's poetry. We didn't have any of Warson Shire's poetry. We still don't. But we really, like, wanted to have that in the collection for students who were like, what is this? Where is this coming from? Uh-huh. Where can I learn more about, you know, this poet, other poets who are related to this? So we kind of, you know, we're like, okay, well, here's some Southern Gothic stuff because that's part of the aesthetic. And we just really want a better means of reacting to things that are happening in the culture because, you know, college students are the most dialed in, I feel like. Yes. And we want to provide things that they're requesting. And I think that it's important to have to provide materials, not just that, not that there's anything wrong with our subject specialists and our reference librarians, but I think they're great. But sometimes there are gaps in what they not only want to collect, but like can collect under their subject. So we kind of want a way of filling that in. So we're trying to get funds allocated for that right now in like my own little mini rapid response collection project. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about it and I hope that it works out. Me too. 
I love that. So now we're going to transition into our final segment, which is a new segment. That we're very excited about. Yeah. Every week, we're going to talk a little bit about what's on our mind, like what we're seeing, what we're reading, um, where we're going, sort of related to libraries, museums, and archives, but, you know, sometimes maybe not. Yeah. Sometimes we don't feel like it. I think this week, though, they're both related to libraries, museums, and archives. Yeah, because we're nerds, and that's what we do. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you, Courtney, what's on your mind? Well... I went to the Cultural Center, the Chicago Cultural Center, um, a couple days ago on Saturday, and um, I saw a couple of really cool exhibitions. So they had an open house, and there were a ton of people in and out. They had a lot of great artist talks, and it was really great to see how many people were in and out of the Cultural Center, but um, the two exhibitions that I saw that I really enjoyed were... um, Eugene Ada, or Ida, maybe, uh, Wade's murals that were from the doors of the old Malcolm X College. And they had this label that kind of explained why they wanted to have murals on all of the doors. There are these huge metal doors. Uh Um, And they said they wanted to kind of deinstitutionalize how it looked because it's on the outside. If I don't know if you've seen Malcolm X College, it's on it's on the near west side. It's right by the Illinois Medical Campus. Oh, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So it's a Mies van der Rohe building. Okay. So very kind of not brutalist, but it's just very institutional looking. Okay. It's not it's not the most beautiful building, but they wanted to kind of. Like I said, deinstitutionalize how the building felt, and part of that came from you know the school to prison pipeline idea. Oh, interesting. Um, and it was they wanted a lot of really um, powerful images of African American and Black um, people. So they had it, a lot of it was was focused on um, African motifs as opposed to like Caribbean motifs, but. Um, they're really interesting. They're really beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. And the other show was, it was, um, a group show of 50 artists from each of Chicago's 50 wards. And so they each had a piece in the show that was representative of life in Chicago or just kind of their own work. That's Um, so cool. It was really cool. There's a lot of weird stuff in there, which, like... It's art. <laughs> yeah. Um, my two favorite things were uh, Rose Bluen's Anointed, which is a photo of this little boy who's pouring water from a water bottle over his head, and he just has, like, the most serene look on his face. It's beautiful. Did you put that on your Instagram? I did. I cried. It was... It's it's stunning. Oh, okay, I have to go. <laughs> And what was your other one? Um, Paula Aguirre and Sarah Pooley's um, Closed Chicago Public Schools. So they had these boxes that were mounted on the wall that you can kind of spin. Mm -hmm. And each side had information about one of the Chicago public schools that has been closed. So they had who it was named after, where it was located, a photo of it, and 
um, I guess, kind of like an update of what the building is being used for now. Mm. Are any of them being used for? Well, they kind of have like been bought and they're going to tear them down. So sad. Yeah. But but what a cool piece. Really interesting. And it's also really striking to see all these boxes on the wall. Like, it's really sad. That's amazing. Okay. I need to go. I'm so sad I didn't come with you. (laughs) Next time. Next time. I think I have to see how long it's it's up, but we should go again. Yeah, absolutely. So, Catherine, what's on your mind? Well, what's on my mind this week is Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> um, one of my friends, Mackenzie, came in town. Um, I hope she doesn't mind my saying her name on the podcast. She and I went to go see the musical Hamilton. So jealous. It was amazing. But before that, I took her to the Newberry so we could see their installation about Alexander Hamilton. Very cool. It was incredible. Um, The thing that I love the most about the Newberry is, this is so lame because, you know, our podcast is called Loud Girls in Quiet Rooms, and everyone thinks that librarians shush people all the time. But, like, the cool thing about the Newberry is you go in there and it is, in the exhibition galleries, often it's silent. You know, it's not heavily populated. Mm -hmm. Um, We're there during the week. So maybe on the weekends it gets crazy. But I usually end up finding myself there when I take days off and drag people with me to go see the Newberry on like a Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) But we just walked into this exhibition space after talking to a very, very nice person um, at the front desk about all of their collections. And she was like, oh, you girls are from Utah. Oh, my goodness. Let me tell you about our indigenous people's collections, which I'm definitely going back to see. But In this quiet, quiet space, there's just this amazing lighting and just these incredible things. Like, they have eight copies, first editions, of the Federalist Papers, one of which was owned by Thomas Jefferson. Like, I didn't know that they had that. Thomas Jefferson's copy of the Federalist Papers! It's insane. Um, They had, like, Hamilton's uh, published, like, letter about John Adams and how much he hates him. So just things that... You know, we saw reflected in the songs later that we've been listening to for a year, (laughs) obsessively. But just, like, really cool um, early editions of American work. And it kind of brought me back to my time in Rare Books, because while I was there, uh, the assistant curator curated this amazing exhibition, which is digitized and online, and I will link to it in the show notes, about the American Revolution. And it just, you know, like, I got to hold Common Sense by Thomas Paine. And then there was a copy in the Newberry, and I was like, oh my goodness, these are the same edition. <laughs> um, and you can go there and hold it when it's not on display in the Newberry, so maybe I'll go do that, but I might cry That's on so it. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really incredible. That would make me so nervous. I remember when I was working at um, the Loyola Art Museum, mm-hmm. and I was helping kind of set up one of the new shows and they had like Greek pottery, like ancient Greek, Greek pottery. And the registrar was like, do you want to hold it? And I was like, no, I really don't. Cause I'm going <laughs> to drop this. No, with rare books, the important thing to remember is they're more scared of you than you are of them. <laughs> <laughs> and to not be afraid because when you're afraid, you're really twitchy and then you might tear something. But I highly recommend holding very old books and smelling them. Anyway, <laughs> Um, I think that kind of wraps up all of our discussions from today. So let me just say that our 
amazing new theme music was composed by the gorgeous and brilliant and talented Gabrielle Perret. Yay, Gabrielle! Yay, Gabrielle! And that you can find all of our future episodes on iTunes, where we are loud girls in quiet rooms. We'd love it if you subscribed, rated, reviewed. You can also find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lgqrpod. Follow us at lgqrpod on Twitter. And email us at lgqrpod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, if you'd like to be a guest, if you know about culturally relevant things that the Shake Weight has done for us. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to thank you all so much. I've been Catherine. I'm Courtney. Thanks so much.